Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, it is my honor and pleasure to have on Dr. James Garbarino. Dr. James Garbarino was mentioned and and, uh, nominated as one of the 33 most influential psychologists in the United States due to his work on trauma. And he is also a professor and developmental psychologist. Now, he is an emeritus professor at Loyola University in Chicago and at Cornell University in the fields of uh, human development. And you have uh, quite a wide array of books, and I will mention some of the uh, a few of the books that he has written, and some are included are Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases from 2015, Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us, and Children and the Dark Side of Human Experience, among a variety of other books. And today, I will, I'm happy to speak to you about the influence of trauma on child development and some of your personal experience, because uh, as I see, you've traveled the world and have worked with kids in the United States, but also uh, kids that were impacted by the trauma of war, uh, specifically the Gulf War and other issues. Now, what what can you say? What what developed your interest in this field and working with such difficult and I would say very moving cases? Well, I I came to developmental psychology as a graduate student um, <clears throat> by way of uh, actually starting in graduate school in um, in uh, government in political philosophy political theory because I. I'm a real child, child of the 60s. So I came out of the civil rights movement, the uh, uh, movement about the Vietnam War. So I came to graduate school with a strong sort of social justice interest. And only after finding my graduate work in government sort of unsatisfying, uh, switched over to my other main interest, which was children. I had worked as a counselor at a summer camp and just enjoyed being with children and taking an interest in children's lives. I actually taught in an elementary school, in a junior high school for a year. Uh, And so when I was dissatisfied with government and political science, it was sort of a natural to um, make that transition. And then through a coincidence, I knew a very famous person in child development a professor at Cornell named Yuri Bronfenbrenner. And I had known him socially. I worked with his kids. And I told him I was dissatisfied with government. I was thinking of transferring into history. And he said, well, why don't you give human development a try? And so I said, well, that seems to make sense. So I sort of, sort of backed into the world of child and adolescent development as academic pursuit. But I brought with me this focus on a war and social justice. And so it was almost a natural that eventually I would get interested in uh, child abuse, um, ch- 
children in community violence, children in war zones. And uh, that interest just sort of took over and became a central focus of my life, not just my career. Um, and that's how I got involved as, in this work as a psychological expert in murder cases. I never set out to do that, but someone read, a lawyer read the work I'd been doing on uh, the links between the developmental impact of child maltreatment in the home coupled, coupled with community violence outside the home and said they had a case that, that seemed relevant to. And so I, I've always been sort of uh, eager to walk through doors that open in front of me. And so I said, sure, I'll give that a try. So I went off to testify in that case and that's become a 30 year pursuit uh, parallel to this interest in children and trauma in war zones around the world. I mean, that led to a book called No Place to Be a Child Growing Up in a War Zone, which focused on Cambodia, Nicaragua, uh, the Middle East and, um, and Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia. Uh, so these two tracks, what they have in common is the developmental impact of trauma. <laughs> yes, and now, and from your experience before getting into this developmental uh, psych did, and working with children in the elementary school setting, did you see something that also elicited interest or did you see uh, some kind of influences in terms of environment and parenting uh, right away? Or was that something that you saw later on? Well, and in, the, um, <clears throat> in the junior high school, <clears throat> I was part of the social studies department. And because I was the youngest sort of low person on the totem pole, they gave me this class to teach, which was technically a business class, which I had no real background in. Uh, but they sort of handed me the textbook and handed me the class, which was the 30 worst kids in the ninth grade. And so uh, there I was, a young 21-year-old uh, beginning teacher faced with sort of the 30 worst cases in the ninth grade in that school. So it really forced me to confront the fact that, you know, why isn't Mary here today? Oh, she was arrested. Why isn't Billy here today? Oh, he was drunk in first period. Why isn't Robert here? Well, he got taken by protective services. So it really forced me to confront the, uh, you know, the glimmers of the dark side of human experience as manifest in the lives of these 30 quote, worst kids in the ninth grade. And I really uh, responded to that. It, <clears throat> it resonated with my sort of missionary zeal <clears throat> it resonated with my uh, finding uh, human development intriguing. And in a sense, uh, I remember one experience in particular, I, the, uh, I spoke up at a meeting, a joint meeting of the English and social studies departments and the head of the English department complained that I was being too psychological in fact, he said to the chairman of my department, quote, can't you shut that kid up? And the person who sort of intervened on my behalf was the school psychologist. And so that <clears throat> was affirming and supportive and helped crystallize his interest. So I went back to graduate school in 
human development with a focus on child and adolescent development, but always with this interest in uh, social issues. But I attribute a lot of it to that experience that year teaching business to the worst 30 kids in the ninth grade. And years, many years later, I was given an award by the National Association of School Psychologists. And I pointed out to them that it was a school psychologist who had a pivotal role in um, directing me in the direction that became my career focus. Right, and that, that's very interesting how things play out like that. And, and also it must, it must have been, you know, something it must have moved you. Uh, did you see you could, you could make a positive impact on these kids by, uh, by being more, let's say, compassionate rather than punitive? Because this seems to be a theme throughout your career. And I want to touch upon that after, but was there a specific instance that, uh, that you've, you saw this before you got into the, uh, the specialty area? Well, there were, there were two kids in particular in that class, a boy and a girl who were boyfriend and girlfriend. <clears throat> and I really tried to sort of take them under my wing, <clears throat> brought them home, had them over for dinner, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> tried to intervene on their behalf. <clears throat> and the more I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, the more I saw, the more I realized <clears throat> that their lives were being misdirected by what happened in their families uh, and in their neighborhoods. Uh, <clears throat> so that was very important. And I think <clears throat> you've identified something which is central and that is uh, seeking out uh, sort of compassionate human explanation for behavior by kids that is negative, destructive, aggressive, violent, self-defeating, self-destructive. And that really has been something that sort of humanizing kids who are demonized has clearly been one of the uh, motivating forces for me, whether it's child soldiers or gang members. Um, so yeah, that was really pivotal. And I think it, it is important to understand that. <clears throat> I know in when I was teaching, I've retired now from the university, but I always wanted students to understand that research and theory doesn't come out of a human vacuum it comes out of human experience, including the experience of the investigator or the researcher or the author. And all of these influence can, you know, shape uh, what you do and that's who you become professionally. Yeah. And, and this, yeah, this is really interesting for me to see how your, you know, your passion developed. And now in terms of uh, you've, I mean, you, I've seen some of your lectures and you've been uh, interviewing and, and talking to uh, people that, you know, and especially younger people who have committed uh, atrocious acts and yet you are able to somehow see something positive within their personality or look at uh, areas of them as a whole person that you find redeeming. Can you give an example of that? And, uh, and the second part of the question is also, have you, have you, do you have experience with uh, talking or, or changing someone's mind in terms of somebody who has uh, a very 
a punitive reaction, which I would say in, in some of the cases, some of the murder cases would be a, a natural reaction, right? To, to feel uh, uh, anger or disgust. So have you, what would be an example of that or some of, some of the worst cases and also where somebody who is, let's say more for the punishment uh, rather than re rehabilitation would have changed uh, their minds about a specific case? Well, I can think of two examples, one involving a, um, a lay person, one involving a professional. Um, I was testifying in a case where a 12-year-old boy had been murdered by a 15-year-old boy. This had happened, I think, 12 years earlier, something like that. And so the, the perpetrator was up for resentencing. And at his hearing, his father spoke very movingly about how the death of his son had essentially destroyed him, that he had become depressed, he had uh, turned to alcohol, you know, he was a wreck. And uh, this had gone on for more than a decade. And finally, through the intervention of his Christian pastor, he was beginning to make progress and sort of rebuilding his life. But he had a lot of rage, quite understandably, and, and hatred, uh, and had wanted the, you know, the destruction of this 15-year-old who killed his son. Um, after I testified, he, he had a sort of epiphany, the father, because I testified to how the 15-year-old had gotten to the point where he killed this 12-year-old boy. And the 15-year-old was now a you know, 25-year-old seeking resentencing because he had gotten a life without parole sentence and was seeking a resentencing for something different. Uh, it was really quite remarkable because the father, after my testimony, when the hearing went on recess, the father came up to me and thanked me for what I had said. And then he went to try to hug the 25-year-old man who had killed his son. Because when I had testified, I had talked about rehabilitation and transformation, and that this 15-year-old boy had been transformed into a very different person at 25, that he had dealt with his own trauma and processed his own adversity. And what the father said was, he realized that he needed to transform himself in the same way, and that compassion was a vehicle for his recovery, his salvation. And so having said that, he wanted to hug this 25-year-old who a couple of hours earlier, he was ready to you know, send to the electric chair. So that was a very dramatic example of a transformation. The professional example I think of is, I did a program in South Africa, which is heavily attended by police leadership. In South Africa, then and still has a terrible problem with community violence and murders. And there were 10 police officials in this <clears throat> workshop for a half a day. At the end of the morning, they went around, the leaders went around and asked each participant, uh, what did you get out of this morning's presentation by Garbarino? And unanimously, the police official said, well, our training taught us to focus on the questions of who did it, and what did they do? And now having heard this, we realize we need to focus on the third question, which is why did they do it? 
And I took that as a real sign that there'd been an effect and impact on their consciousness uh, about dealing with uh, violent behavior. And that's always the goal is really to raise consciousness about it. You know, some people are easier than others um, to, to make that transition. Uh, but I certainly like to think that it's possible. There is some research from psychologists uh, uh, in Kansas who studied people's belief in absolute evil. And he developed, uh, he and his, his name is Saucier, S-A-U-C-I-E-R. He and his colleagues developed a, a survey questionnaire for identifying how much people believe in absolute evil. And then he was able to find that the more people believe in absolute evil, the less willing and able they are to look at mitigating evidence when presented evidence in a sort of mock jury kind of situation. And I think that's a very telling point that some people's, the structure of their belief system makes it very hard for them, almost impossible to, uh, to see mitigation, to see the origins of violent behavior in abuse and trauma and maltreatment. And so getting them from this absolute evil to a more sort of humanistic view, recognizing the humanity of even people who do evil things uh, is a big task. And I don't know that we've had, made much progress in that, but it does happen. I know a man whose son was murdered and he was, you know, he favored the death penalty. And then he went to one of these victim awareness programs and articulated his rage and pain and the response from some of the incarcerated men, all of whom had committed murder, so touched him that he transformed his view and in fact became a leader in, uh, in the victim awareness movement for compassion for perpetrators. And a lot of these young killers look at him as a kind of surrogate father at this point. So there are a lot of things that you can encounter when you are in this field that are uh, some of them are wonderful and transformative. Some of them are very discouraging, of course. Right. And in terms of uh, somebody who is a lay listener here, uh, could you describe some of the uh, changes that came about in terms of the person, specifically the, the case you just mentioned with the 15-year-old uh, who, who had committed this murder? Uh, I mean, it, it sounds, I would assume that it would the change in the person would have to be quite substantial for you know for the father of the victim to, to have been uh, swayed or to to have had this kind of a change of heart so what what exactly was the process there that that led to this change of heart well my 2018 book miller's children you know tries to explore this in great detail but uh, but what, what I can see is, first, at 15, he's operating with an immature brain. And that the two areas that that brain immaturity uh, produce effects in are, one, what's called executive function or decision-making, weighing consequences, weighing costs and benefits, looking to the future. The second area that's affected by the immaturity of the brain is what's called affective regulation or emotional regulation. The ability to be emotionally intelligent, to understand your own feelings, to understand the feelings of others. And these two liabilities in teenagers make them prone to do things which are impulsive, stupid, self-defeating, uh, and so on. 
you add to that their special susceptibility to peer influence, and you have a very dangerous combination. Now, this guy was sort of exemplified that. But by the time he turned 25, um, we could presume mature brain, uh, brain maturity at 25. That's, I think, what modern neuroscience is telling us, that that process doesn't stop at 18. It really takes to the mid-20s to get a mature brain. And then you have a mature brain to use in, in transforming yourself. So this guy was getting to that point. He also had the benefit of educational uh, experience, uh, even while incarcerated. And that educational experience changes his brain. There's a book uh, by Norman Doidge called The Brain That Changes Itself, which is about brain malleability. And basically the conclusion is that what you do can affect your brain because your brain, effect, your brain uh, resonates with your experience. And then that changed brain can generate new patterns of behavior. So there's an interactive process there. And education is one of the methodologies for doing that. The third one um, really is spiritual development. That many times it is, you're faced with coming to terms with what you've done and what do you do with that? Do you become more, um, more negative, more nihilistic? Do you become more aggressive? I often say that one pathway for an incarcerated young person is to become a savage barbarian. But there is another pathway to become a monk where you commit yourself to a life of reflection and prayer and spiritual development. And that that can provide a, literally a rebirth, literally, literally a transformation of the soul. And so you put all these elements together. And this is what I often see in these men who committed murders as teenagers, who by the time they're in their 30s, certainly have had 20 years, 10 years to get to that mature brain, 10 years to use that mature brain in the process of maturation. And if they've committed to this monk-like existence, the results cannot be just simply rehabilitation, but transformation into what are sometimes amazingly wonderful human beings, human beings who you would not have predicted you would see based on what they did at 15, which is one reason why you know, the courts tend to focus on the facts of the crime of a teenager. And I think that's mostly irrelevant because I'm unaware of any evidence that the, the specifics of the crime committed by a teenager have much predictive value on into adulthood. Uh, <clears throat> so this, this uh, guy I mentioned in particular was a bit ahead of the curve because by 25, he had made a lot of progress. I'd say it's more, more common to have the progress come in the years after age 25. But I, I think it's, a, it's something that it's surprising. Some for people, it's hard to believe. But if you actually encounter it, it's really quite uh, credible. Okay, so basically this person had transformed in a way and the the father had noticed that and seen that the representation, maybe the mental representation of the this monster was changed. It had it had it was not rooted in the current reality. Um, now, you mentioned something uh, just before as well, which was one of the questions that I wanted to ask towards the end. But I can I can just 
you know, get your, your uh, view on this, but you mentioned this idea of evil and absolute evil. And as you're somebody who has dealt and talked to and worked with people who have committed terrible crimes, what is your, what is your feel on this? Is, is evil, is absolute evil something you've seen, or is it all uh, just a part of hurt and trauma uh, creating a vicious cycle. Hmm. Well, that's a that's a pretty fundamental question. Um, it's certainly something I struggle with, and it's certainly something that the psychological community, the academic, professional psychological community, struggles with. I wrote an article back in let's see, it's probably the mid seventies, an article called "Child Abuse and the Problem of Evil," which I tried to address this topic, was there evil? Uh, were there people who were so immersed in evil that they they themselves had become evil? Interestingly, I had a hard time finding a professional journal that would publish it, in part because people said, well, evil, that's not a psychological issue. I think it was finally journal uh, published in the Journal of Religion and Mental Health, because they had a framework that could incorporate this. Um, I do think that Certainly, there are people who are so profoundly damaged morally and emotionally and psychologically that their behavior has lost touch with goodness per se. Um, you know, a lot of people who deserve and merit and get the diagnosis of being a psychopath are certainly in that category. That is, you know, the original def the original meaning of psychopath is moral insanity psychopathy is moral insanity. And that, I think, is a very apt description, because uh, when you sit with a psychopath, you, you, some, you get a sense that they do not have a moral framework. They don't exist in a moral world. And it's a dis very disturbing thing to confront. I think more broadly, there is evil in the world in the sense of there are ideas, there are uh, policies, which are designed to hurt people, which deny the dignity of people, and and you know can and should be considered uh, manifestations of evil. Um, you know many of those are very political. Uh, you know I mean, Nazi Germany was a society that was governed by people who clearly were steeped in evil. Joseph Stalin, uh, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. These genocidal regimes clearly are tapping into what I think is a, a reality of evil in the in the universe and evil in human experience. The, the difficult part becomes saying, is a person evil? Um, and I think there are people who don't have the capacity to rehabilitate from evil. You know, a guy in prison once said to me, How can I become rehabilitated? when I was never habilitated in the first place. And I think that's a very important insight that to become rehabilitated, you have to, it's going back to something. And if you're a psychopath as a, you know, that emerges as a kid, you don't have some moral place to go back to. You start from a position of moral insanity. And, and to transform that is something that really is a would-be miraculous, and it's very, very rare. 
That's why most people consider psychopaths sort of untreatable. I mean, there is one study that found with teenagers who were scoring high on the psychopathy scale, maybe not the highest, but as teenagers, they could be sort of built into moral agents, but it required an intensive therapeutic one-on-one, six days a week, three hours a day, you know, for six to 12 months uh, to get a glimmer of of moral uh, life in these kids. And of course, that's a huge investment. So I think that there, you know, there is evil. Um, this sort of self self aware commitment to hurting other people, to demeaning other people, certainly to me speaks that you're you have, you're 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 connected to evil, that you're manifesting evil. Uh, it's a separate question whether there's an alternative way for you to be. And I worked I worked on a case of a kid. He, uh, he had decided that his career path was to become a serial killer. He came from a very religious family and basically had decided that there was something not good about him. And so the only path forward was to take on the evil path of killing people. Uh, and he said he was going to kill just bad people. Um, but that was his goal. But the way it started was he realized that he had leaked his intention to his best friend and to his sister. And he figured before he could start his career as a serial killer, he had to kill his best friend and his sister so they wouldn't interfere. And he got as far as killing one of them before he was caught. It's hard to look at that and, and say that his motives in any way were good. They clearly were evil. And he had steeped himself in the world of evil. He read about serial killers. That's why he used a knife. He... Um, he was just drawn to this dark side of human experience. And that sort of moral weakness and moral failure set him up to be a manifestation of evil. It does happen. It's relatively rare, you know, thank goodness. Uh, but, it, but it has to be acknowledged. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's one of the, obviously one of the great human dilemmas, what to do about that, how to make sense of it. Indeed. And, uh, and as you said, this is a topic that within psychology, it makes people very uncomfortable, uh, because it also edges upon a sort of a metaphysical question, right? And I would ask you, since you've brought up before a spiritual component to the healing process to the transformative process, what is do you personally have a, a religious or spiritual take? On these things because you've described how ideologies can lead to evil acts and you know people that we we will we may define as evil people you know you, you gave examples Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot etc but do you think there there what's the what's your metaphysical view of this if if you if you don't mind sharing well I've had a sort of unusual spiritual slash religious path. I began my life as a Catholic through no particular choice of my own. Uh, and then as I moved through childhood and adolescence, I, I moved to the Methodist church, a Christian but Protestant denomination. Uh, eventually I moved to Unitarian Universalism, which has its roots in Christianity, but certainly by that time, 
had become a, a sort of different breed of religious experience. And then eventually moved uh, to Buddhism, finding that uh, attractive as a spiritual path. And that's not unusual. What's unusual is that uh, when I was in my sort of Buddhist phase, I was at a Buddhist retreat and there was Buddhist chanting. And I realized that what I was hearing was not the, uh, the Buddhist chant, but the Lord's Prayer. And I sort of had to confront the fact that at root, I guess I was a Christian, not a Buddhist. So I went back from Buddhism to Unitarian Universalism, which had been my last stop before Buddhism, and eventually moved back to the Methodist Church, and eventually moved back to the Catholic Church. And uh, I taught in a Jesuit university, and I found Jesuit spirituality to be very consistent with the impulse that had drawn me to Buddhism in the first place. You know, the Jesuit spirituality says that, you know, the goal is to find God in every place and every one. And modern Jesuit uh, thinking and acting, I just found a very uh, hospitable home. And so being at Loyola University in Chicago, a Jesuit university, I felt more comfortable than I had ever felt at any other university I, I taught in. So this, uh, that's sort of how my path went. And um, you know, there is a line in the Catholic liturgy that says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And that's a, a line, a, an expression that always brings tears to my eyes in, in a Catholic mass. And it's something that I think is so powerful for, you know, for people who've committed horrendous crimes because it, it has both the recognition that you have transgressed against the fundamental moral code, but that there is a way back for you, that there is a path out of that darkness for you, that uh, rehabilitation and redemption are all possible. They're not easy, they're not, uh, they shouldn't be granted uh, lightheartedly, but that reality is sustaining for me in my work, it's sustaining for me in my life, and it's sustaining, I think, to the individuals that I have, in some cases, had the privilege to know who, over a period of decades, have climbed back into the human community after doing something that led to their expulsion from the human community. And one of my closest uh, uh, inmate friends you know, talks about how he would wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and what he saw was the monster that had committed this terrible crime. And he committed himself to becoming somebody else, uh, which he has done successfully. So I, you know, I think the, the dangers of not having a spiritual life are that first, um, uh, criminal interactions exist only between the people committing them. Uh, I want your jacket. I could kill you for your jacket. But the minute you allow there's something bigger, then there's three parties to this. There's you, me, and this third element, whatever it is. The second thing is that without a spiritual foundation, it, it, when things get bad, it's easier to fall into a kind of uh, uh, free fall, spiritual, emotional, metaphysical free fall. But if you have a spiritual identity, there's a place to stand in the universe. I may be profoundly distraught, but at least I know I live in a meaningful universe. And the other thing, I think the third thing is humans have a craving for meaning. And I think a lot of psychologists have dealt with that. 
But if you don't have that meaning, it, it leaves you with a kind of hole in your heart. And there are dark forces that are willing to fill that hole. I remember a study from the Texas youth prison system some years ago, where they found that something like 15% of the kids identified Satanism as when they were asked to check their religious orientation, because Satanism is, you know, is demonic. Uh, it, it's connected to evil, but it does provide meaning. It albeit a dark, negative, demonic meaning, it is a meaning and it fills that hole in your heart in ways that can be very dangerous and destructive. Obviously much better to fill that hole with light and goodness. Uh, and that's certainly what this transformative process can be. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a, those are great points. And thank you for sharing your spiritual path. Um, and that's what I, what I was thinking in terms of this, the, you know, the emptier the vessel is, let's say, in, in this, in this case, I will use the vessel as the human being the human entity. Uh, and without a search for meaning or some kind of guiding tradition, the easier it is for you know, ideologies that may be oversimplistic or over utopistic that will create uh, ultimately manifestations of evil. And I do think that there is something to that. And, and you can even, you know, a lot of the spiritual traditions teach us to keep our passions in check in a certain way. And, you know, because when, when somebody is overcome by, I don't know, anger or extreme lust or things of this sort, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's good to have some sort of self-discipline and to have a, a higher power of, or a higher meaning to this. And I mean, does this idea, uh, has this idea crossed your, your, your mind or has this, has this been also part of the uh, transformative process uh, for people that, that have committed terrible acts to, to see it as even some kind of, uh, you know, a demonic possession or something external? Does that help or, or does it not help to have this externalized um, idea of the act and, and, and you know, what, what came over the, per the person, the perpetrators? That's yeah, it's an intriguing point. You know, I think for, you know, whenever we talk about these issues, there's regular people and then there's psychopaths. Um, and keeping that in mind is always important because no one answer is going to apply to everyone, because, in part because of that distinction. I remember there's a study done in Canada where they thought they would teach empathy skills to prisoners, to inmates as a way of improving their relationships, which sounds perfectly reasonable, plausible. When they analyzed the data, they found a very weak effect. And somebody said, well, you've got to analyze the data separately for the psychopaths and everybody else. And when they did that, a very clear effect emerged. For everybody else, the empathy training program did improve their relationships because it improved their ability to understand the other, to relate, and so on. But for the psychopaths, they treated it simply as a workshop on how to improve your manipulation skills in the sense that if you, if you have empathy training, they say, oh, I understand better how you feel. I can use that against you better rather than I can treat you better. So that's always a fundamental distinction. And I think that um, uh, you know, that's part of the reality. The second part of the reality is that um, most of us, particularly males, seem to have uh, 
a capacity for dissociation, uh, for disconnecting emotionally from behavior as well as ideas. And I think this is one of the most dangerous psychological phenomena uh, you know, in the human universe because it's how people who are otherwise moral agents can support and participate in, encourage uh, immoral activities. Because the ideology, whether it's a religious ideology or political ideology, can dehumanize the other fundamentally. And then if you allow that dehumanization, you dissociate from the emotional realities of the victim, whether the victim is a, a race or a gender or uh, you know, somebody in another gang or another militia, another army. So I think dissociation is one of the key psychological phenomena that permits uh, evil to triumph. And it permits ideology, again, whether it's political or religious, to transform into, you know, genocide. Uh, so I think, you know, there are psychological concerns like dissociation and psychopathy, but there's also the content of these uh, ideologies, whether they're religious or political. And most religions seem to have two sides to them. You know, within Christianity, there's the uh, damning, judging justification for violence through capital punishment or war uh, on the one hand, but there's also within Christianity, the, the sort of soft Jesus of, you know, suffer the children unto me. Um, you know, it's, uh, one of the breakthroughs is, you know, is to say that if everyone is God's children, then who are you as a human to transgress against God's children? Uh, it's a bit like <clears throat> sort of uh, thinking of a lot of associations. There was a psychiatrist, Michael Levy, back in uh, probably the 50s or 40s, who spoke about two kinds of problematic mothers. There were uh, indulgent mothers who basically said, He's my child, I'm his mother, I should do whatever my child wants. And then there were domineering mothers who said, he's my child, he should do whatever I want. So there's always the potential, even with something like mothering, for it to take these different aspects. And um, you know, certainly when taken to extremes, they can become uh, destructive. Uh, and I think that's true of these ideologies as well. Uh, whether it's Islam, uh, you know, which has jihad and then has this dehumanizing of the infidel and thus justification of crusades against the infidel, or it's Christianity, which has its own crusades against its own infidels. The minute you, uh, as a collective thing, uh, disregard, uh, dissociate from the humanity of the other, you open the door for all of this, which is why whenever I work on a case, my first item on my agenda is to make a human connection. You know, I was working on a case of a guy who woke up one morning, took out his semi-automatic rifle and killed his wife and two stepchildren, just massacred them. Uh, he, it was so traumatic that he developed dissociative amnesia about it. He really couldn't remember he had done this. He believed someone must have broken into the house and knocked him out and done all this. Well, when I went to see him, you know, I thought, well, how do I make a connection with this guy, this mass murder of his family? And what I did was to start saying, well, he has dissociative amnesia. He doesn't remember, he doesn't believe he actually did this. So the first thing I said to him was, 
I want to start by saying how sorry I am for your loss. And, you know, he teared up and he said, man, thanks. Nobody's ever said that to me before. And that opened the door to get at what had really gone on that led to this. And, and you know, whether it's a gang member or other kind of murder, that's always the first item on the agenda, I think, is to find a way to make a human connection so that you can then you know, move from there to your evaluations and judgments and assessments and recommendations. Right. And I'm really glad you touched upon one of those key psychological issues, which is dissociation. And indeed, we, we know that uh, dissociation can often be also a defense mechanism uh, for people who have been traumatized. And so this dissociation is then more easily applied in the cases of committing crimes and things of this nature. Now, what do you what do you uh, think about that? Or what have you seen in terms of uh, kids who have been traumatized? And for people who don't know, dissociation is again, it's, it's a disconnect between the experience and the feeling, the emotions, you're dissociate, disconnecting from parts of yourself. So, and, and you mentioned also the, the phenomena of othering, dehumanizing, which is, is well known in the cases of, of violence and uh, homicides. But what, what have you seen in terms of uh, developmental trajectories of kids that have been traumatized and, and then getting, getting them to be you know, reconnected, let's say, rather than dissociated? Well, you started by mentioning that I was named as one of these 33 influential psychologists. They asked each of us to write like a 500 word piece on what we thought was the big coming issue in our field. And so what I wrote about, and it's very relevant to your question, is that a sort of on a, on a campaign to change the D in post-traumatic stress disorder. I really think, and certainly as a developmentalist, the focus should not be on post-traumatic stress disorder, but post-traumatic stress development, because that's really the issue. What do you do with this trauma? Where does it take you? Where do you go? And dissociation is certainly one of the issues in that, because it is, and probably as Bruce Perry has pointed out, it was an evolutionary adaptation to trauma, this dissociation, particularly in children, that if you disconnect from it, you can survive and go on to reproduce. And so the trait uh, is passed on. Uh, I think, you know, it's a, like a lot of survival, psychological survival techniques, it has a risk attached to it, that the more you dissociate, you may be able to function in a social environment, but you have blind spots. Um, you know, this has been, I think, very clear with uh, children who f suffer from sexual abuse and cope uh, particularly if it's repeated incidents. And that seems to be the trauma. One of the most important things is, is it a single incident, a single acute incident of trauma, or is it chronic? Some people call that uh, complex trauma. I think just calling it chronic trauma is, is enough because you can't just, you know, say things are back to normal. Normal is the problem. So you have to find a way to deal with a chronic negative normality and dissociation is a way to do that now if you do that in response to sexual abuse it's likely to produce difficulties in having a you know productive sexual life because you've cut yourself off 
from sexual uh, arousal and stimulation uh, because of the way in which it occurred. The same thing is true with violence in the home. The same thing is true with rejection. You know, Ronald Rohner's work finds that the trauma of rejection, parental rejection, accounts for about 25% of the variations in bad outcomes in development to the point where he calls it a psychological malignancy or psychological cancer. And dissociation is one of those uh, strategies or tactics uh, that allows people to survive trauma, particularly chronic trauma, but it doesn't come free. Um, it comes with this new risk that you'll be able to commit acts, which otherwise, if you were associated, not disassociated, you'd be inhibited from doing, but you've sort of taken out uh, the safety on this weapon that you've become that association or empathy uh, serves as. And so it, it does increase this sort of social risk. I mean, there are other forms of post-traumatic stress development, you know, that, that need to be looked at having to do with self-esteem and uh, self-identity. Um, you know, narcissism is identified as one of the consequences of chronic trauma uh, because most narcissism, it turns out, is compensatory in the sense that it's an antidote to feeling worthless is to feeling grandiose. It's one of the reasons why narcissism is found to be higher among uh, juvenile delinquents. Uh, the base rate is higher among African-American males who have to deal with racism uh, and, and so on and so on. Uh, so I think once you get in your head this concept of post-traumatic stress development, move beyond disorder, you begin to see how it influences the pathways of development. And uh, you know, one crude measure of that is something called the Adverse Childhood Experience Scale, which is supported by the CDC and is, uh, has been so widespread in its use because it's 10 simple questions about adversities that you can experience growing up, some of them traumatic, like witnessing domestic violence, being sexually abused and so on. And it turns out that these 10 simple questions account for about half of the variation in things like depression, substance abuse, and suicidal behavior. Um, so I routinely ask you know, guys that I assess or interview to complete those 10 questions. Now, the average score out of the 10 is seven among guys that I've worked with who've committed murder, seven. How does that compare with the general population? only 1% of the general population has a score of seven or higher. So that means the average guy is worse than 99 out of 100 people in terms of experience of adversity and trauma. And so it's not surprising that they've developed problematic patterns of behavior. It's sort of surprising when they don't. You know, and many of them have scores of eight, nine, and 10, which are only found in one out of 1,000 people. Uh, so the, the general population may have a hard time relating to the inner life of these individuals because two-thirds of Americans have a score of zero or one. And for them, this world of seven, eight, or nine is, is a foreign territory. It's an exotic foreign land that they don't live in. They've never lived in, most of them. And that's part of the policy problem of getting jurors and prosecutors and judges to understand the emotional and psychological reality of the offenders that they're dealing with. And some of them make an effort, some of them quite frankly don't and simply judge people for becoming what the research says is likely they would become substance abusers, aggressive, 
self-destructive, depressed. And it's sort of, you know, we'd have that phrase blaming the victim. There's a lot of blaming the victim that goes on, particularly in this, the dealing with people who commit homicide, who, you know, they can be dangerous and they can't just be, you know, they can't just say, have a nice day, go back in the world. I actually think that for many of them, it requires this 20 years as a developmentally appropriate sentence to give them the time to get to the mature brain then use the mature brain to actually transform. But if you look at the weight that they're carrying, it's not surprising. You know, I often tell these guys, it's like you have a childhood backpack and each, each yes to this adverse childhood experience scale is like you're handed a rock, a stone, and now you put it in your backpack. All right, most people can carry one or two of these stones in their backpack, but most people, when they get seven, eight, nine, ten, they stagger under the developmental weight of this adversity and trauma. And to get better, you've got to stop, take the backpack off, take the rocks out one by one and process them and dissolve them until you're, you're lighter again and you're not staggering under this weight. And that's another metaphor for this process of rehabilitation or transformation is unpacking your adversity backpack and, and clearing out these weights that you carry around. It's not easy. It may require professional help. It can be done through reflection and so on. But it, it can uh, unburden you to the point where you can become a productive, positive, decent uh, citizen and human being. Great. I have two, two more questions to touch upon. And one is, uh, I, as I know, in, in the United States, there's there's a big problem now with uh, opioid, uh, opioid addiction and, and all sorts of addiction. And this was, you know, this isn't the first time in recent history where in, in the United States, there's been these drug issues. I know in the 1980s, there was the crack epidemic, primarily among African Americans. Uh, and now there's this opioid uh, epidemic. And would you would you say that it, it is the result of, of a, a, a trauma in a way or some traumas in terms of, uh, you know, seeing uh, the ec- economic issues and poverty rising. Uh, and have you dealt also with uh, addicts or people who use drugs or alcohol to cope with their pain? Well, I think it, it, it's pretty clear that um, a lot of the substance abuse at least starts out and either starts out as it becomes a form of self-medication for trauma. Uh, as I said before, the adverse childhood experience scale accounts for about half of the variation in substance abuse. Um, and you know, it accounts for high blood pressure, cardiac issues, asthma, a lot of things, but includes substance abuse. I think almost nothing is accounted for completely by anything. So there's other sources of variation. Uh, simply the nature of the substances available, their addictive properties is a factor in all of this. And I remember I've talked with guys who said, you know, I grew up uh, before the crack epidemic hit the streets. Uh, so I didn't have to deal with that, but my younger brother did. And so the social context, the cultural context, even the sort of technological context of what the substances are, what their effects are, how addictive they are, is all part of this equation. Uh, so people in one era may start to self-medicate because of trauma and they have a mild uh, marijuana available to them. It, it serves the purpose, but it doesn't 
act as a gateway. 20, 30 years later, uh, the same gateway is being served by something much more potent. Um, so, you know, these issues always depend on the context in which they occur. And that runs even to uh, mental illness. You know, the, I, one of the most mind-blowing studies I ever read was done by some anthropologists. They were looking at schizophrenics in three different cultures. Now, about half of schizophrenics hear voices. It's called auditory hallucination. But they looked at what those voices were telling the schizophrenic. And they found in the United States, 70% of the voices, 70% were telling them to commit acts of violence against themselves or others. In India, it was only 20%. In uh, Ghana, it was only 10%. In India, most of the voices were telling them to clean their house better. In Ghana, most of the voices were understood as positive conversations with God. So, you know, if you ask the question, are schizophrenics more prone to violence? The answer is, as it is to every question, it depends. It depends on the cultural context you're in. And I think that applies to substance abuse as well. It is one of the strategies, one of the tactics for dealing with trauma, for chronic trauma, for post-traumatic stress development. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of drugs that are out there may compound or minimize the problem. Alcohol, you know, being one of them. So I think, yes, it's a, it is related to that. And more broadly, it's related to the, the sense of personal psychological and cultural injury that people get when their dignity is stripped from them. And that can be related to economic forces. Uh, economic inequality is one of these assaults on human dignity. And it's not surprising that that can translate into substance abuse. And then of course, there's uh, corporate interests that get rich on these vulnerabilities, whether it's the um, uh, alcohol industry or the uh, uh, oxycodone industry, the opioid industry, it become very clear that you know, they capitalize on this. And then, you know, that, we talked about psychopaths before, you know, the studies typically show that the corporate executive CEOs have three times the rate of psychopathy that the general population does because it takes a sort of psychopath to say, I know that this drug my company is producing will addict people and kill them, but I'm gonna promote it anyway. I mean, that's a very sort of socially psychopathic view. Uh, and that's why I think you know, that research finds that uh, from not 1% in the general population, but 3% of CEOs <laughs> makes sense. All right. And and this, yeah, I, I just thought about it in terms of symbolism, the fact that so many people are hooked to painkillers that like there is a lot of pain going around. That's what I meant by that. But of yes. course, there need to take into account a variety of contexts there. But the last question I have is in terms of practical uh, advice, recommendations that you would give to parents in terms of what are the key critical areas of development and what are some, you know, some practices that are ideal in, uh, in you know, raising, raising children that uh, will become productive and uh, less, less likely to be dissociative and uh, things like this. And uh, if there is a child that has been, you know, has been through a hard time, uh, what what uh, what one can do about it? Well, you know, it's a big, I mean, I would start with 
some of the big sources of trauma and developmental harm that emerged from the research. One is parental acceptance versus parental rejection. Uh, as I said, Rohner finds that parental rejection accounts for 25% across all cultures of bad outcomes because human beings crave and need acceptance. So as a parent, you know, always be vigilant that the message you're sending is one of acceptance, not rejection. Uh, a personal example, I was a ball player growing up. You know, every kind of ball game was my life. I realized early on that my son was not going to be a ball player. It was really crucial that I not impose on him that he would feel rejected by me because he wasn't a ball player. Instead, I accepted his other athletic pursuits, running, kayaking, scuba diving. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I think, uh, besides broadcasting acceptance is you know, look at the 10 uh, adverse childhood experiences. Do you have any control over them? Um, uh, you know, parental separation and divorce is one of the 10 factors. What can you do even if you, what can you do so the child doesn't feel they're losing a parent even if there is separation or divorce? Um, uh, emotional, the emotional abuse of children is a big issue. I did a whole book called The Psychologically Battered Child, finding ways that, to discipline that don't involve violence. Uh, the research shows that even if you believe that hitting kids is good for them, the research says you're wrong. It isn't. It's one of the adverse experiences being hit. So you can look at, you know, look at these, these research pathways and try to match up parenting as best you can in relation to them. Uh, kids who have had traumatic experiences being sexually abused or physically abused, they need help in dealing with them. Uh, there isn't a lot of spontaneous recovery. They need a processing of it. Um, so, you know, I think uh, most of the good parenting books and manuals uh, reflect this. So, um, you know, most of the cases that we're talking about here today are cases where the parents, or at least one of the parents, is the origin of the trauma through abuse or neglect um, or domestic violence, uh, being a substance abuser, you know, having a family member who's a substance abuser is one of those adverse experiences. So it's really about the qual overall quality of the family environment that you create and avoiding violence, rejection, um, and the negative definitions of the self of the child. Right. Yes. Uh, agreed. And, and you made a good point in terms of uh, parents, you know, divorce, high divorce rates and not manipulating the child into taking sides, I think would be also important. And yeah. yeah. Well, James, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And um, where can the listeners uh, find your work, your, your books? You have a, a great array of books you've published over the years. So where, where would they find your work? Well, I think the simplest thing is on Amazon. I think pretty much all of the, there's 26 books out there. Some of them are probably disappeared, but the major ones, Listening to Killers, Lost Boys, um, Miller's Children, See Jane Hit about girls and aggression. I think they're all available on Amazon. I, I would start there. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. It was uh, a pleasure. And uh, thank you to the listeners.